Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is the co-founder of the professional coaching company Q-Squared and Black Founders Hub, a network for Black-owned high-growth businesses. He is a non-exec director for Forbes Family Group and Our Game Football, a public speaker and coach to executive-level leaders, and the host of the Brave Leader Podcast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome David McQueen to the podcast. Welcome, David. It's lovely to have you on the podcast today. Well, that's good to be here. Thank you. Sorry, I was just looking at my phone because I needed to turn the do not disturb on sign off. But we're good now. We are good. And it's it's all right. It's really great to have you on the podcast today. And you do have a very interesting story because you are an accountant and then you went into IT and now you are an entrepreneur and you are also a speaker and a coach to executive leaders in business. So can you tell me a bit about your journey in your own words? I've always been curious. Um I'm actually found out the other day, I actually knew it anyway. I found out the other day that I love structure, but I hate rules. I hate people telling me what to do. (laughs) So uh, my wife can testify to that. But uh, I've always really been curious about work. And I've always been really curious about the world of work and what actually happens as a result of what I can bring to the game. And so my accounting was as I I started off, I was I actually was going to be what I call one of the migrant four, right? So if you're if you've come from a migrant family, your parents expect you to be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, or something in engineering or technology. And the doctor route was my original one, and I was like, no, nah, this is not for me. I hate it. Then I went into law, and I was like, oh, I don't like that either. And then the one thing that kind of like really caught my attention was around accounting because it was around finance, it was around numbers, and I've always been quite entrepreneurial. So I went into there not to be an accountant, but just basically to kind of have a sense around how do businesses work? How can you manage money, et cetera? Did that, got as high as I can before they started hassling me about taking exams. I said, screw this. I don't want this conversation anymore. In my late 20s, I then went into IT, did a lot of systems reporting, project management, functioning development, all the rest of it, because I'm quite right-brained, okay? But what I found with both of those careers is I spent a lot of time sitting down with people talking about careers, talking about effective communication and presentation. Then I was like, oh, I might be onto something here. So I jumped out of working for people because I'm a really bad employee. I really am. I'm just putting it out there. And I had to be my own boss. And essentially, I um, decided, what can I do? And I realized with the career piece, that was really the, the bit that I enjoyed doing. I love speaking about careers, spoke about my own, spoke about working with individuals from students all the way up to senior people who wanted to change careers or do work from there. And then while I was doing that, a lot of people said, oh, I love the way you present and you speak. Can you teach me how to do presentation skills? And I'm like, yeah, of course I can. And then I started kind of like doing that. And then I realized there was this melding between the careers and the presentation bit. And and I thought, well, I've got a commercial background. I understand finance. I understand the technology side of it. So the logical decision making. I've done this career and presentations bit for a bit. How can I take it to the next level? The next level for me was around this coaching, around leadership development, around management development. And that's what I've been doing. But every way, and the the thread through all of it is I just like helping people, you know, whether it was managing your money, whether it was getting your IT right, whether it was finding out what you wanted to do your career, all those things were good for me. And then I, and the beautiful thing about it is I always was like, how do I make money from this? And how do I make a sustainable business from that? And so every single part of the journey, that helping bit is a top line. But the curiosity as to how I can make really good money out of that and go on nice holidays with my wife and kids, that's with an underlying piece as well. You mentioned that the public speaking that you do, 
around um, businesses and, and helping executives and managers. And you do bring a lot of charisma and your sense of humor into, into that public speaking. And your personality is, is like a really big part, I think, of, of your, your speeches, which I think people are really attracted to and relate to because of the authenticity that's involved in, in that and you being your real authentic self. And that's something that you speak about quite a bit and as well post about on LinkedIn too. But do you think being authentic is a really important part of being a good leader and being a good speaker. So I, I, I want to say I struggle with the word authentic and I do. And only because sometimes I feel that people can overuse it because the honesty is, and this is a big part of my work. Do we really know who we are? Do we really know ourselves? And it's only sometimes when we're put under pressure or a different situation comes up, do we know who we are? For example, I remember being involved in some work around Me Too, the Black Lives Matter, when stuff kicked off with um, Ukraine and Russia. All these organizations pulled me in as a means of being able to take them through this journey. And one of the things I realized in the questions is people were just out of their depth. They just didn't know. And so I know it kind of sounds like semantics. I'm not sure I would say it's about being authentic per se, but I think it's about being honest. I think it's about being real. And I know some leaders don't like being vulnerable because they think it's a sign of weakness. But I'm never afraid to say that I'm wrong because if I'm taking people on a journey and we're going in the wrong direction, I'm going to be like, hey, mates, we're wrong here. We need to go left instead of right. Because if I don't say that, everybody goes right and then I get the blame. And I'm like, no, I want to be able to demonstrate what that is. So to your point, when I write, when I speak, whether it's on podcasts, whether I'm doing a keynote, doing a seminar, doing some facilitation, yeah, I do bring that honesty to me. So it is about my language. I swear sometimes I won't on your podcast. I'll spare you all that. But I swear and I, I, and again, not just to offend people, but it's because it's part of my language. It's part of my vernacular and I'm really comfortable with it. And I know for some people it's like Marmite. It doesn't work for them. But for me, I realize that the individuals who do want to listen to me or do want to bring me in, they're fine with the fact that I will say it as I see it. And I'm not afraid to be wrong and to learn. And that's something that I've had from quite young is, you know, I'm not hooked up on certainty. If I've got it wrong, let me learn. Let me take it to the next level. So yeah, there is something about being honest and about being real that definitely is part of my persona, is part of the value that I bring to the work that I do. And yeah, I am i don't know how it would be replicated for anybody else, but it definitely works for me. I mean, firstly, you can swear on the podcast if, if you do want to, but um, <laughs> on the same vein of that, being your authentic self, I think, especially in a professional environment, do you feel as though people should be two versions of themselves in terms of, you know, having a professional version of themselves that they bring to work and then having the person that they are in their, you know, personal lives. Is there sort of a divide between those two different types of personalities in a business leader, do you think? I think it's a blend. The way I carry myself as a dad and the, the sense of humor I have with my daughters as a dad, I could not bring that into the workplace. <laughs> I just It just wouldn't work in the workplace. So a lot of it is contextual. But I do believe the underlying piece of who you are should come true. I don't think you should have to change your voice. I don't think you should have to play down who you are because that takes a lot of cognitive energy. That takes a lot of brain space to do that. But it will be contextual. Some consider me a rebel. Like I'll rock up to a leaders conference and everybody's in suit and ties. I'm coming in skinny jeans, my Converse Chuck Taylors. I'm going to come in my polo shirt because for me, what's important is the wisdom of what it is that I'm bringing to it. And I remember I got a lot of pushback from individuals when I first started doing that. They were like, oh, we would have preferred you in a suit. I said, if Richard Branson came here, would you ask him the same thing? Or if Steve Jobs came here, would you ask him the same thing? And they go, oh, well, you're not a billionaire. I know I'm, and I say, no, I'm not, but you're paying me to be here. 
So, you know, realistically, does that matter as much? Does that take away from the authority or the gravitas that I have? And so there is something around being able to go, okay, well, how do I want to present? What is the professional side that I do want to present? Uh, Again, I'm a sweary person, but I know I will go into certain spaces where there may be religious mores or cultural mores where swearing or profanity might be seen as a negative. So what I will do is I'll usually ask those organizers, are you okay with that? And they will say to me, no, and then I will tone it down. So I will adapt and the context there will be slightly different. But generally speaking, I will keep being who I am. And I do say this, and I I know sometimes people think it's controversial, but I often can tell, and this is kind of like a sixth sense, how people carry themselves in their personal lives as comparison to when they're in an office. Because you can't keep up the facade for too long. It cracks at some point. And as much as I kind of say to people, try and make sure you have a blend. Try and bring some of just who you are to all the work you do, rather than trying to be this buttoned up kind of, you know, persona that you can't maintain and it makes you really tired. So where possible, work on that blend and bringing your, the the best self. I don't say your whole self, because I don't think you can bring your whole self to work because that would be chaotic, right? You bring that and people would not be able to understand it, but bring that best self you can and, and then just work, you know, get some feedback, get feedback loops from a coach, a mentor, from colleagues around how you are and, and, and how it works really well for them. And then you play it by ear. But yeah, it is a blend. It's It's not hard and fast rule and it is a work in progress. Yeah, I I think I like that kind of idea of viewing it and thinking about it as a blend rather than a binary between the person that you are at work and the person that you are at home. But just to touch on the story that you you told there about coming to these business events and conferences, wearing what you want and then justifying that, I think shows a certain characteristic, I suppose, within yourself where you hold yourself to a high regard and you have quite a high self-esteem, which is arguably a very important aspect of being a business leader. What role does self-esteem have in an executive's ability to lead well? I think it's a strong role. And I think that we have more than one self-esteem. We have self-esteems because there are areas of confidence or areas of self-esteem that we will we'll be really good at and others we won't. So for example, I know that I'm, I have a very high sense of self-esteem when it comes to speaking and communicating. I know I have a, I have a very a high sense of self-esteem when it comes to understanding finance and um, how I can work my way around some financial statements. I, I have a sense of high self-esteem when it comes around leadership. I don't have that same energy when it comes to marketing. I may not have that same energy when it comes around policy because those are not my areas of expertise. But what I do know and what I bring to the table, yes, there is a real strong sense of self-esteem. And and very often it's around going, you know, what do I bring to the table and what's the evidence that backs it up? For example, I always get challenged on it, but I just don't buy into imposter syndrome. I'm like, there's nobody out there telling me I'm an imposter. I've worked damn hard to get here. I've come from a a tradition where we were told to work twice as hard. There's no way I'm going to work twice as hard to get here for somebody to to them feel as an imposter, not having it because I have got the receipts, I have got the experience, I have got the client testimonials, I know where I've done the work really well, so why am I sitting here feeling that I'm an imposter? And don't get me wrong, I understand there are complications around this and it's different for other people, but for me, for the individuals that I coach, I'm going, well, if if you're paying silly money to go into this space, why are you feeling that you're an imposter? Why do you feel that you're going to get caught out when you know exactly what you're doing? Focus on the positive rather than the negative. And so for me, that self-esteem business, isn't it? It's it's, a It's a muscle that we continually build and it comes across different domains. We have self-esteem in different domains. 
But to your point, I think it is very important as a leader to have that because when we are demonstrating our leadership, it's not just what we say, but what we do as well that people are looking at and they'll see that gravitas, they'll see the authority, they'll see that confidence, they'll see that self-awareness that takes us to the next level and they will want to replicate that and they will look at it. So for me, self-esteem for leadership is very, very important. I like what you said there about the fact that self-esteem is something that you can have in some areas of leadership and not in others. So would you say a big part of being a good leader is also recognizing your weaknesses as well as your strengths? And how do you do that as a business leader? How can you recognize those weaknesses and strengths? A hundred percent. So a big part of uh, leadership development for me is around feedback loops. So whether they are from your coach, your mentor, your personal advisory board, your direct reports, people who you report to, is that we're constantly getting feedback loops about what it is that we do, our areas of strength, competence, and what we do really well, and the areas of weakness. For me, in my areas of weakness, I either go, right, I need to either get trained or I need to hire somebody who can do it for me. So I know around marketing, that's not my strength. I'm going to hire somebody who's really good at marketing and can explain to me what are they doing and, and what's the nuance around this. And to your point, yes, it is It is about playing to your strengths. Know what you're really good at and stay in the lane that you know you're really good at in doing that kind of work and not getting bogged down around whether or not you have all the answers. And very often I, I come across leaders who think that they need to have all the answers. No, you don't. You just need to have what you know for that point in time and then be able to pull down on a resource for other people who who do have the expertise in that space. And it is about acknowledging your weaknesses. Like I'm very much a big picture person. I don't really, really like the detail that much. I can do it, but I do it only if I need to. I'm very much a visionary. I like to see the big scope and the stakeholders and the impact. Do I want to get down into the nitty gritty details, like granular? I'm like, nah, let me go and hire somebody who can actually do that. And what that allows me to do then is allows me to do the job that I do a lot better because I can focus on what I'm really good at. In identifying what I'm really good at, I also identify the bits that I'm not as strong as or as weak in. And then I find individuals or other processes that help me to close that gap. So leaders should know, yeah, this is what I'm good at, but also recognize these are the areas that I'm not really good at. And either I will go and train and do some learning to increase that or find the resource and skill around me to bridge that gap instead of me having to do everything. A big part of that, it seems as though it comes back to this idea of being vulnerable as a business leader and recognizing when you don't know all the answers. But how important do you think it is to have a team around you that gives you honest feedback and a team that you can trust to really be honest with you about your own leadership style? I think it's critical. I think it's absolutely critical. And depending on the seniority you're at, I, I believe you should always have two boards around you. If you're at a senior level, you've got your usually your executive board that you're responsible to. And in some instances, you may have an advisory board. But even if you're not there, I will say get yourself a personal advisory board. These are your individuals around you, your coaches, your mentors, your friends, your peer mentors, people who will speak honestly to you. And often where I see failures in leadership, it's because people don't have those honest people around them saying to them, you shouldn't do this. Or have you actually thought about that? I'm fortunate enough that the people who are around me have got no qualms, whatever, calling me out of my ship. They will say what they need to say without apology. There's no, oh, Dave, you know, I'm sorry. No, they just say straight. They just tell me you shouldn't have done that. I don't agree with this. Have you thought about that? And and they will pose the questions in, in such a way that they'll understand what my response actually looks like. And for me, that's critical. Because if not, I'm just going to be buying into my own biases. And it doesn't mean that I take everybody's advice that comes to me. 
but it does challenge my way of thinking. I'm like, mm, if somebody thinks about that, have I thought about that option? Is it a blind spot for me? And I could still be really determined about the direction I'm going in, but I have to take into consideration this other viewpoint. And so for me, any leader should be surrounded by people who would not be afraid to call them out. And even if it means that calling them out means that they could lose their job, even if it means that calling them out means that it could end up in some conflict, for me, a real good supporting board and what have you has got no qualms in being able to challenge that and being able to set the tone as well, right? So I don't think you go in there and start fighting with people, but you should be in a position where you go, I don't agree with that. I don't think there's consensus on that. Um, and it's a bit, bit of advice or a bit of coaching guidance I give to all the clients I work with. If you're not going to be surrounded by people who can challenge you robustly, who can really kind of like look at your stuff, but critically assess that before you make a decision, then you're just going to kind of like sail along. You're going to glide along. You're not going to get much innovation. You're not going to be able to think outside the box. You're not going to be able to recognize your own biases or blind spots because you just got yes men and yes women. And that's not going to help the situation. So for me, it's critical. This idea of navigating conflict within a business is something that everybody at the top of a company, every manager needs to face and or will face at some point, uh, inevitably. And one of my favorite episodes of your podcast is one, and now I am going to be the one that swears, but it's, it's one entitled Don't Be a Dickhead. And that's where you speak about managing different egos in your team. And that's a subject that I don't really hear being discussed very often, but that is the root of a lot of conflict in businesses. How can business leaders navigate these personalities and these potential conflicts when they arise? So the, the, the big thing for me is recognizing what the big picture is first and foremost. What I've realized in the conversations and the work that I've had is that the reason why a lot of people avoid conflict is because they feel that it's going to escalate from zero to 100. They don't have a sense of the in-betweens. People want to be agreeable. They want people to like them. I'm like, let me be honest with you, there's only about two or three people in this room that actually like you. Just get a grip. <laughs> the rest are only here because you're paying them well and they like what you do. They don't really like you that much. Just be honest about it. But there are models and culturally specific models that individuals can use to sit down and go, all right, you know what? We have a bit of difference here. Let's start with the consensus. What is it that we agree on? We agree on X, Y, or Z. Okay, what is it that we disagree on? What's the case for it? And give people the opportunity to be able to make a really big use case or business case as to why they believe in that, but also give them the challenge to be able to listen and argue the other side. And sometimes I get people to go, right, you may believe this. Okay, I want you to switch it around. And I'll be with teams. I'll go, right, I want you to argue from their point of view. And they're like, I can't do that. I go, yeah, you can. I want you to take their argument and I want you to flip it around. And often what people don't realize is when you do that, you become a lot more empathetic. You may not have to agree with it, but you understand where that other person is coming from. And rather than it being this full-scale thing that will blow out totally out of proportion, you get an opportunity to look at all the facts, look at all the data, understand why we may have emotional triggers to certain things as well, and then recognize that whatever our singular opinion is, if it conflicts with the bigger picture of where we want to go to, then the bigger picture is the one that will work in our favor. So if an organization wants to be able to go to X, Y, and Z, yes, you may feel that by doing this specific thing, it will help the company. But if as an organization, you want buy-in and you want people to understand it, you may realize, well, the bigger picture is bigger than my individual position or individual take on a on a point. So a lot of the, the, the management or conflict for me is moving it away from how I feel and how I am in the moment, as opposed to how does this work best for the organization? How does this work for all of us? And how does it progress us? 
irrespective of the opinion that I may have and being okay with the decision that gets to be made. And I think there's a famous story around Amazon Prime. Apparently, Jeff Bezos wasn't the biggest fan of Amazon Prime as, as his video platform. He just he wasn't, he wasn't a big fan of it. They have a, a process within Amazon where you argue a point on by memo and you argue you know, from top to bottom. And they were able to argue their point well. And even though Jeff Bezos disagreed with it, because there was a consensus and because there were people who pushed it further, it became the platform that it is and wildly successful ever since. But they were able to deal with it. And he was like, okay, you know what? I don't disagree with it, but I will fully support it if it's for the better of the company. And for me, that's an, an absolute perfect example of what it looks like to get past our own ego and see how does it benefit our customers? How does it benefit all the stakeholders in the organization? And how does it work for us rather than just being dealing with one singular ego? Something else that you also bring up in quite a bit of your speeches is the importance of resilience as a characteristic in a great leader. And this is undeniable and and does come up a lot when speaking about leadership and great leadership. How important is having the type of personality where you don't take things too personally important in being a great leader? So do you think you need to perhaps not be a very sensitive person to be a great leader? I think you still can be sensitive. You know, we are, as as humans, we're quite nuanced, right? We come into a work organization or into our adult working professional lives with lots of patterns and behaviors that we have been shaped by our culture, by our family, by our schooling. There's so many kind of bits of baggage that we bring into it. And if somebody does something that reminds us of something and we entrench ourselves in our belief or we think this person has pissed me off because this reminds me of X or Y, we have those kinds of behaviors. But for me, there's something that can still be done with an organization where we teach resilience. I use the phrase resilience as a team sport. Resilience, in essence, is that ability to to recognize that when something goes wrong or when we've had something that's thrown us off course, that we get back together to go back onto the main route that we're going on. So let's take, for example, 2020, Black Lives Matter came. Um, My phone rang off the hook because loads of individuals wanted me to come in, talk to their teams, very often oblivious that I didn't have any of the answers. I can come in and have a conversation and tell you something. I didn't have any of the answers, but they called me to come in. And one of the things I said to people is, what does it look like in a year's time? And they were like, what do you mean? I said, you're talking about all these really good initiatives, but what does it look like in a year's time? You put up all these black squares, you're giving all these promises around equality, around leadership. How do you deal with all the other ethnic groups that aren't black? And what about their progress and the conversation that comes from there? And very often there were individuals who just wanted a quick fix. They just wanted to have a really good PR stunt and you know be in the space and, and be recognized. And I said, well, it's got to go longer than that because the resilience is, is how do we bounce back from that but still come together as a team? And I should have said in the last question that you asked me, I really do see leadership within the context of the organization that you work with. I think way too much emphasis on leadership is on the individual. And I think that's fine for specific situations, but leadership stands and falls with the organization that you actually have. If you are in an organization and there are, you have a vision and you have ways of taking people to a journey, that thing should be replicated across the board. There shouldn't be one kind of leadership in finance and one kind of leadership in marketing and one kind of leadership in operations or customer service. The leadership should be consistent across the board. What are the values? What are the rituals? What are the behaviors that you tolerate? What's the kind of climate and employee experience that you have, which then impacts the actual culture that you're working with? 
So for me, when you are thinking about the resilience, in a sense, it's got to be around the actual system. If you think about anywhere in in nature, when you look at ecosystems, if you go and attack a hive and people will rally around to protect the queen. And that resilience is because the queen is the center of that DNA. The queen is the the producer of new life is the producer of all the the worker bees and the and the and the drones and all the other kind of different bees that are there. The way dolphins may protect humans when they're being attacked by sharks or fish in the sea. It's a collective. The leadership is a collective, and they bounce back and they form that collective together. And I think we have so much that we can learn from nature. How do we bounce back from a situation? It's not just that one person. Yes, somebody may be charismatic and they may be visionary, but if they don't do that within the alignment of the actual organization then no one's going to take other leaders that seriously. So the resilience is a team thing. It's got to be part of your DNA. It's got to be something that people can easily look to and replicate and go like, if I want to be a leader in this organization, these are the examples that I want to follow that will empower people, give people agency and let them do stuff. Sometimes people do that for bad. Let's be honest with you. There's bad leaders as well. There's bad leadership examples. But the truth is, is resilience and the ability to bounce back has got to come from the organization as a whole rather than just singular individuals. And that can be taught. A big part of rallying a team around and really understanding what your organization is and being a leader within that organization sounds like it's it's rallying a team around a common goal and value and really understanding the values within that company. But what does that really look like? Because the phrase values and, and, you know, defining values gets thrown around quite a lot. But even if you've defined your values as a business, how can a manager or a business leader really make their team or enable their team and empower their team to be motivated around these values? So I think values are overrated in businesses, if I'm honest. I think they're overrated. When we had the 2008 financial crash, crash, we had great values on their walls, but literally the behaviors that they had demonstrated that they didn't really give that much attention to it. You know, when we have oil spills and disasters, great values on the walls of those energy companies, but the impact that it's had on climate and the change and all the rest of it showed that they didn't really care. You know, I think think of um, organizations that have caused chemical spills, climate change, all the rest of them, all of them have got massively beautiful values, integrity and honesty and respectability and warmth, all these kinds of stuff as values. For me, where it really matters is the behaviors. So if your behaviors and your rituals are things that demonstrate exactly, and, and your policies demonstrate what is tolerated in the organization or what is acceptable, that for me is the only way when you realize what the values are. And the behaviors, for me, often people have values and then behaviors. I think the behaviors shape what the actual values are. So, for example, if you are working with a client and, you know, you talk about integrity, for me, if you are in a space where somebody is trying to close a sale, but the sale is more around them hitting their monthly target as opposed to serving the customer and then obviously being able to go to to revenue, it's the behavior that becomes more prominent than the actual value. And very often, I think people get it the, the other way around. And, and values is difficult because we all have different values. I do this exercise when I go into clients where I get them to write down their top three values. What are the three things that you value the most? They write it down. I said, right, give me the top three values for the organization. People struggle. They go to one and maybe two or what have you. And then I go, right, draw a line between your personal value and the organizational value that obviously encourage you to work here. And very often, people are not able to align the two. But when we start to talk about behaviors, when we start to talk about the way that we treat each other, the rituals that we have around celebrating promotion, succession and leadership and 
customer results and all the rest of it. For me, that bit is more important. So for me, I think the values, I don't think they're irrelevant, but I think too often organizations overrate them. And I believe, especially when you're thinking about the employee experience and how people are, or the climate of the company, how people are really seeing how things get done. For me, it's those behaviors and rituals that are first and foremost that shape the culture. And then essentially, those are the ones that tend to shape the values afterwards. But I think behaviors first, rituals first, and then the values follow afterwards. It's a bit controversial, but I don't really care because I like controversy. <laughs> no, that that makes complete sense. And um, and yeah, I think our listeners will, will find that very interesting to hear. But I do want to come back to something that you said earlier about, you know, you gave the example of the business that is essentially wanting to do a PR stunt in terms of making their business more diverse and inclusive. And I know that diversity and inclusion is something that you are passionate about and you advocate for. How can business founders ensure they are considering diversity into every business decision that they make and they're not just paying lip service and they're not just, it's not just a tick box exercise essentially. So the first thing I think we've got to realize is bloody hard work. That's what it is. Just be really, really honest. Look, every Christmas people get gym memberships and they go on diets and people say they're never going to drink again and they're going to go, they're going to go and go uh, and eat sensibly. Behavior change is freaking hard work just for us as individuals. So imagine when you take that context into the workplace. So I always say to individuals, okay, who are your customers? That's what I really want to know. Who are your customers? Uh, or everybody, the whole world. I go, okay, right, fine. Let's segment that down. How do you really want to serve your customer? And when you start to think about how you want to serve your customer, there's three things that come out of that. You start to think strategically as to how you're going to serve the customer. You start to think about the decisions you're going to make around serving that customer. And then how, if there are any problems, how you're going to solve those problems. So strategic thinking, decision-making and problem solving. And what actually happens is when you start to have those pillars in, they impact every single part of the way that you do your work. So the way that you think about your finance, the way that you think about your marketing, the way that you think about your customer experience, your service design, the whole talent process from the way that you attract talent to hire them, to promoting them, all those things come because you've got a playbook, a blueprint of the way that you think strategically, the way you make decisions, and the way that you, you solve problems. Very often what I find is that an organization will, instead of being proactive, they will react because they think, oh my God, we don't want to be seen as racist. Or, oh my God, we don't want to be seen as against women or, or non-binary or what have you. And, and there's this whole kind of like reaction. Whereas I go, lay the foundation first. Lay the foundation first as to what is it around your decision-making. And if there's a way that you need to change, then change it. One of the terms I hear all the time is diversity of thought. And I'm like, I'm not being funny, but I know you're talking out your ass. I know that you're doing that just because you don't want to commit to let me go and think broader. For example, I think of some of the top firms that I've worked with, they go to specific universities to go and recruit individuals. I'm like, they just know how to pass exams. There are people who I can tell you who are a lot more street savvy. I remember many years ago, I'm sure I'm 53. So many years ago, I remember when a lot of people first started who were working class barrow boys from East London or what have you, really good salespeople. And they started working in the city. Historically, that was like for the buttoned up dudes who were from you know, Cambridge and Eton and what have you, blah, blah, blah. These guys came in and were making deals and they were closing really, really good pieces of business. Why? Because it wasn't just about the intellect and the smarts and the statistic and the analysis. It was about them being able to understand behavior patterns. It's about them being, being able to be really good salespeople and understanding the way that people bought and sold. 
And so the, the stereotype that often happens is that people think just because this is all I know, this is the best way forward. The challenge around diversity, and I said it's really hard work, is going, do you know what? I don't know it, and I'm willing to take a risk to find somebody or find resources that will allow me to look at things differently. And we've seen it, to your point, we've seen loads of adverts on the television where they've just got it totally wrong, and they've got it wrong, really, really badly wrong. Um, we've seen individuals trying to provide a bit of customer service to somebody, and, and it's fallen flat out on their face because they haven't thought about the person who's there. For example, if I have visual impairment, or if I have a limited physical mobility, the customer service that you provide for me as an individual is not going to be the same as somebody who can walk straight into a bank or somebody who can jump straight onto a computer screen and get the answer straight away. So have you thought about how I'm going to access that? Do you provide audio? You know, even when you're putting content online, do you do it so that you're totally aware of individuals from different capacities being able to consume that? And whilst individuals may go, well, that's not my problem, if you really want to have an intentional approach to being a lot more diverse around who you work and then creating that space to be inclusive so people feel that, oh my God, you actually are serving me. You actually are thinking about what it is that I do. It takes a lot of hard work, it takes a lot of heavy lifting and you have to be intentional about it. It can't be an afterthought. It has to be part of the DNA that you have in your organization from the start. I mean, the word that I pick up on there is access and I think for a lot of businesses, you get trapped in almost an echo chamber, I suppose, or a space where you exist and and are appealing to a certain demographic. And it's very difficult once you're in there and have been existing there for a long period of time to branch out and be accessible to people that fit outside of that remit and outside of that demographic. What are some of the ways that businesses can break through that wall? So again, things like focus groups, you know, when you are going to launch a product or when you're thinking about the kind of customer you're working with, ask questions. Never be afraid to ask questions. People feel that they should know it all. Just ask the questions. I, I, I want to know how somebody wants to be able to access this. How can this make it better for you? What is it that I can do? You know, my, my, uh, on a personal note, my wife injured her foot this year, um, her leg this year, should I say. And what it's meant is that whenever we've gone spaces, you know, whether it's to eat or to have entertainment, I'm consciously aware, is there a lift there? Um, you know, how are we going to be able to access this this room? Is there space so that when we are moving through tables or wherever, no one's going to knock her leg or think about, you know, just how we're going to get from A to B and where am I going to park? What time can I get there? All these things that have been brought to my attention primarily because she suffered an injury, there are individuals who are, that's their daily life. And so even as a practitioner that thinks around inclusive leadership, I've had to think about that more. So like, although there are some challenges around it, a friend of mine said there's a bit of a challenge. I love the way that they decided to do the Elizabeth line, the new Elizabeth line, because every single station has wheelchair access. You never really think about that, but the majority of London Underground does not have wheelchair access. And so if you're trying to get into town, how do you get there? You go just go by bus. Is that the only option that's going to be available to you? And so a big part of it is going back, and I've mentioned it before, is around design. How do we design our services for our customers? What does that actually look like when, yes, we may have a specific avatar or a key kind of client that we we're working with but if we expand that remit and we expand that brief what does it look like to be able to cater for them as well and so hiring those individuals into your team who can start to think differently hiring those individuals who are not afraid as i said before to say to you no and really challenge you when you're thinking because they said well have you considered this have you considered this way of actually being able to look at it i'll give another example working with a a client who was very keen about having 
unisex toilets because they you know wanted to expand they didn't want to be limited by gender or what have you but there was a real strong pushback from the organization where a lot of women said going into the bathroom as women made them feel very safe because there were other women around there they could talk and they were conversations going into a unisex one did not make them feel as comfortable and so while they were making the move they had to change it again because they hadn't listened to the actual staff and the points that they were being able to make. So they thought, okay, you know, we're politically correct and we're doing the right thing. This is inclusive. We're going to do the, you know, what have you. And you get the feedback from the staff and women were like, I just don't, I just don't feel comfortable being in the bar from the same space as a man. Just don't do it. Plus there was the religious overtones that come with that as well as the social and what have you. So a big part of it for me is just asking better questions and not being afraid to change once you started. Just sometimes you can get a really exciting idea and then when you look at it, in, you can have the best intent in the world, but the implementation is really crap. You have to go back to the drawing board and think, how do I serve my internal customers as well as my external customers, and then go back and serve them accordingly? It definitely does seem very important to ask those questions and open up the space for discussion. But I think especially with around issues of diversity and inclusion can be quite difficult for businesses. And I just want to reference one of the speeches of yours that I've seen. And you you said something about how people don't like speaking about race, but you do. And it's important to around all forms of diversity, but I guess specifically around race, do we need to speak more about these things in a professional setting? And how can business owners and and managers cultivate an environment where it's okay to ask these questions and speak about these quite difficult and sensitive issues? Again, I think it's 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 a point of asking questions. Very often individuals just want to roll out a whole program. And I'm like, sometimes you just need to do the small bits first. I'll give an example of a, a client who wanted me to come in. They, they had offices in Asia Pacific and they had some offices in South Asia. And we were going to, they wanted me to come in and talk about how we could manage conflicts and how we could talk about race, because basically they were expanding their staff and there were individuals from other countries who would probably end up in Asia Pacific and South Asia. And there was so much pushback from individuals from me being the person who was going to facilitate that space. And I was like, okay, my ego is fine. My wife and kids, they keep my ego in check. So I'm not worried about that, but find somebody who can have that conversation. If it's not me, find somebody else, but it's important to have that because if I leave the UK, for example, and I go to Hong Kong and I go to work in there, there are going to be different ways of working in the culture that will impact me. I know that there are, for example, a number of black colleagues across different industries who relocated to Hong Kong who couldn't find accommodation because even though they went and registered the accommodation online, when they turned up as black people, their landlords said, no, they don't want any black people in their, in their property. Now, when you're coming from the UK, you're like, that can't happen here, mate. That's racist. Like, we'll come, we'll come for you. We'll take you to court and we'll, we'll read you the right act. But in other territories, that's not fine. I, again, as I said, I, I had uh, a friend of mine who was Pakistani and who was working um, oh, I cannot remember the, where the territory was. I think it was just outside of Mumbai. And she went to rent a property. Again, her, what it was is her skin complexion was slightly darker. And they did this skin test to see, like they called the brown paper bag test. And hers was slightly darker and she didn't get the property. Now I'm saying this and in my head, I was like, wow, really? Does that, oh my God, does that happen? And then there was a, the, the other interesting part of it because her surname was a Muslim surname. It created even more complications being in this predominantly Hindu space. So I'm saying as organizations, there's a duty of care 
as an employee to make sure, how do I get that accommodation sorted? How do I make sure that that person who's working on my behalf is protected while they're out there as well? What are those conversations we need to have? And likewise, when you go to places like Europe, Europe doesn't consider race a thing. Obviously, because of the end of World War and you know the oppression that came against Jews, and, and to a greater extent, the one that isn't talked about as much but is horrific in Europe is a treatment of people who have Romani gypsy descent. They get treated really, really badly as a social or ethnic group. But people don't want to talk about that. You're either French or German or Swiss or what have you. They never really want to talk about the layers. But for me, if I'm coming from a migrant background, I'm in those spaces, I think it's important as an employee for you to understand what it looks like for me to commute into work, what it looks like for me to work hard, because that's what I've been told by my parents. But then seeing people going up the career progression because they're doing something else that I'm not doing. They're, they're working smarter. They're understanding how to read the room. They're understanding how the politics actually works in this space. Whereas if I come from a background where my ethnicity has is, is, is informed me to keep my head down, don't cause any trouble, don't listen to all that stuff about having a personal brand, just do your work and get on with it and don't get yourself involved in anything and don't connect. How do I stand up there as a leader who isn't afraid of conflict? who isn't afraid to go out there and step out into those zones. And I say it doesn't necessarily have to be framed just as something about race, but there has to be some questions that you ask individuals from different backgrounds. What's your experience like? What is it like to be able to navigate this company? How do you think your prospects stand? What are the kinds of stuff that you have to deal with in terms of stakeholders? You know, I'll give you one more example, working with a client where we really had to challenge them, where they were afraid because some of their customers who they had they didn't want to deal with people of color. Regardless, they just wanted to deal with white people in sales. They didn't want to deal with people of color. And so they were, they had these incredibly brilliant, high achieving salespeople, but they couldn't get them onto those accounts. And my question was, is how valuable is it to you as an organization to keep that client while still trying to honor the employees that you had? And part of the process was, is that they, the people of color who were there were starting to bring in more income from outside of from outside with new accounts. And the historic ones who were blatantly racist, because they blatantly said, well, we only want white salespeople. That's what they told them. They had to let go of the account. And it was painful for them. And they literally had to explain that, look, we're employing people. Whilst we're here to serve you as customers, we don't want to make our own people who work for us feel less than just because you can't get over your own racial prejudices. And that was a harsh one. And it was a, you know, it was something that they had to kind of really fight hard as a global organization to get new clients. But that's the choice that people have to make. You have to ask those questions and you have to find out what people's experiences are. You can't pretend it doesn't exist and sweep it under the carpet. And the last one I'll say to you on this is, you know, quite recently, I've been working with a number of global companies around sponsorship. And one of the things that's happened in the last few years is that there have been a lot of organizations that realize that they're missing out on great potential leadership talent because they've overlooked them, whether it be around gender, whether it be around race and ethnicity, whether it be around sexual orientation, there's this grouping that have been missed out. And so they take on the effort and they go, right, we're going to do some positive action. We've recognized that these individuals have not, their needs have not been met and we're missing out. So we're going to have sponsorship and mentoring programs. And I'm like, before you do that, you need to start thinking about how well a sponsor you can be. Because many of you are sponsoring the same people who look the same, who went to the same uni, who probably called Jack or Dave or whatever. Everybody just looks the same. How are you going to cater for somebody who's different? And so we've had to coach them around understanding their plight, understanding what it's like for that individual who's going to go into a position of leadership and increase visibility. What does it look like at the moment when somebody says to them, the only reason you're going to become a leader is because you're a woman? or you're the only reason you're going to become a leader is because you're LGBT plus or you're of a certain race and ethnicity. And these are colleagues that are saying that 
barefaced in front of individuals. How as a system or a leadership system do you tolerate that? How do you correct it? How do you change it so that person doesn't feel like left out? And it's these questions and the difficult questions that come from this, I think I encourage people to go, we'll do it. It's going to be hard. Of course, it's going to be hard. It's tough. Having to deal with stuff that you've never had to deal with before is going to be challenging. But here are some tools that you can use around the better questions that you can ask around giving agency and around creating a system so that people aren't afraid to be able to talk about this in public. Yeah, asking difficult questions sounds like a very important way to bring up these difficult issues. Um, Something that we spoke about before was this idea of businesses being trapped in an echo chamber and finding it difficult to break out of that mold. So how can businesses and business leaders really find the balance between listening to the people in their team, even if their team might have certain prejudices or certain unconscious biases, but then also break out of a space if they're only existing in one demographic and they they aren't particularly diverse? So there's a lot of learning that can happen from people who have been there. One of the things I say to a, a lot of the leaders who I coach and work with is to connect with people outside. You know, even if they're seen as competitors or or as collaborators, you know, throw a dinner together. There's six to eight of you in an industry without giving away too many details, how have you been able to navigate X, Y, or Z? Sometimes I host or curate those things, but how have you been able to navigate this specific territory? Sometimes it could be face-to-face, sometimes it could be online, a little symposium. But what are those things that are used to help people to navigate those actual spaces? Although I get pushback from some of my colleagues, I also say, I, I want to know what the business case behind this is, because the people who are having the conversation want to be able to go back to their board, want to be able to go back to their senior leaders and say, well, look, here's the case. If we do this, this can be more profitable. This can be a way of retaining customers. This can be a way of reducing attrition of staff. These are all the factors that we can put into there and measure them up and go, well, this makes business sense. And while we're in that space, we're also serving a moral duty to understand the needs and desires of people and how they think things slightly differently. But the driving thing, and without without apology, I will say it's a driving thing for businesses which are put together to make money, which is, you know, serve customers, but they are there to be sustainable and make money is how do you get a use case or a business case that makes sense to all the stakeholders? And once people can sit down and honestly not only have conversations with colleagues across industries and sectors, going to conferences, having speeches and listening to what's actually happening, is also being able to look internally and go, if this makes business sense for us, let's go and let's go and make this change. Because the bottom line is a massive influence in the way that people will change policy. It's not, she shouldn't be the only one, but it is the one that makes a massive difference. And to be honest with you, I think whether it's on a political level now, thinking of it, the incumbent um, political party we have, or if it's some businesses, a lot of people push back against that because they say, we don't want to be woke, all this kind of inclusion stuff. It doesn't make sense. We just want to make money. I think that's quite ignorant personally. And I think it's disrespectful for people's experiences and, and the way that they see the world. But I'm also cognizant that before I can see the world as I want it to be, I have to see the world as it is. And a big driver behind that is making sure that I can convince people that there's a really strong business case as to why this will work, not only for them, but the customers that they serve and the kind of employees that they want on board as well. That's really insightful. Thank you, David. And that brings us to the final segment of the podcast. And this is a segment that we call Answer the Internet. This is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. And the question we'll put to you today is from Reddit, and it's from a user called Justice Judgment. And they ask, how is company culture formed? Blood, sweat and tears, I can tell you. The the company culture is essentially the idea or the ideal 
that leaders have around what they want the company to be. And so that can be from the the ways of working, that can be from the kind of environment that they want to create, so open office, closed offices, what have you. It can be work from home. It can be all these things that can help towards the intention. But I think, as I said to you before, what really does influence it, though, is the climate. How are people actually existing and feeling the way that things are done? And I would actually say that there's usually not a singular culture in an organization. There are cultures in that organization that inform that. And the sum of those is what usually what forms a company culture. But what happens in finance, what happens in marketing, what happens in the different departments, what happens in tech and development in, co- in comparison to sales, there will always, always be differences. But what you understand is what's that employee experience look like first and foremost. And once you can get the climate of the organization, that's how it starts to inform the culture and where you can actually take people on that journey with you. That's a great answer. Thank you, David. And we are Business Leader Magazine. And so we ask all of our guests this question, but what makes a great business leader? There's a lot of conversation around a leader being able to have a vision and being able to really inspire people to do that. But for me, what makes a great business leader is being able to engender trust from people to go on that journey on with you and delivering on what you said you're going to deliver. So that trust piece is fundamental and then delivering on what you said you're going to deliver. For me, those two are absolutely critical. There's communication and all that kind of stuff in there, but those two, trust and delivering, for me, that's what, in in every time I see, both with the clients I work with and externally, the people I always hear people talk greatly about with leaders is because they trust them and they take them where they said they're going to go to. Trust and delivering, those are, those are very important. Um, and finally, do you have any final words for our audience today? Always be learning, always be curious. There is this real big dichotomy at the moment uh, and and very often between leadership and management. And I actually think that they are complementary rather as opposing. You know, it's great to manage and to get the details and everything done, but you need a leader to give you the sense of the vision to where you're actually going in the first place. But likewise, you can't be a leader without followers. As the followers have to trust you, they've got to believe in you that you can deliver. And then you are able to inspire those managers to really keep people to account, to bring in the right staff, to be able to basically be able to go on that journey. And I always say to leaders and to managers to always learn around the communication that they have between each other and always be curious and always be learning. Nothing is set in stone. Just always, always be learning. And and business is around, for me, whatever purpose that individual businesses have, have, Businesses around being able to recognize that there's a group of people who trust your organization. There's a group of people who have joined or applied to work for you and and be part of the kind of vision that you have to take them somewhere. Respect those people and trust those people and look to get the best out of them that you can. Thank you so much, David. Um, It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, but where can our listeners find you online on social media? My website is davidmcqueen.co.uk. That's where most people find me. But if you really want to find me blabbing on, go to go to LinkedIn. And my kind of thing is Mr. David McQueen. You'll see me in there smiling with some grinny smile. But Mr. David McQueen is my tag on LinkedIn. 